Good morning, everyone. This morning's scripture is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 2, starting at verse 23 and going through to chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, what are, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he is and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Good morning, everyone. My name is Greg, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, and before I get into this one, I want to say hello to the Davidson family. Abby, uh, if you don't know, Abby is um, one of our pastors who's on maternity leave um, with their uh, beautiful daughter there who's in her lap. So it's really great to have you uh, with us. Uh, good to, yeah, great to see you. Also good is I hope, I don't know if you noticed during the prayers, uh, Veronica, one of our Sisters um, had major surgery on Friday, and it went really well. And so uh, if you are interested in being part of a meal chain, you can uh, talk to me, and I can, just, I can send you the, the link for that. So, uh, yeah, good news. In the early uh, 1960s, in North America, there was a TV show called The Twilight Zone. Does anyone, did anyone know the show? You gotta, it's the, the easiest ones. Or the, anyway, so it was a science fiction anthology show where each episode explored different themes like racism and war and society, but through a sci fi lens. So some of us did never picked up on these themes that they were uh, working through. And every episode had kind of a surprise ending, and it was designed to make you think. The more recent show, Black Mirror, is actually based on the Twilight Zone. So for those who don't know Twilight Zone but know Black Mirror, it gives you some idea of what it was like. 
1962, there is this episode called To Serve Man. Aliens from outer space come to Earth, and where uh, the Earth is in the midst of international crises. So these aliens come and they announce that they've arrived in order to bring humanitarian aid. They've come to share knowledge and technology that can end famine and end war. And one of the aliens accidentally leaves a book behind. Um, Why these advanced beings have paper books is beyond me, but they're like us. They like to have something in their hands when they read, I guess, right? And uh, (laughs) so uh, the main characters of this episode are trying to figure out what this says. They want to translate it into English. And so they figure out the title pretty quickly, which says, To Serve Man. And so they figure it that it is a book describing the ways that the aliens are serving humankind through technology and humanitarian aids, aid and the things that the, these aliens are doing. Within months, the world is free of war, it's free of hunger and famine, and everyone is so excited about these aliens who came to serve man. And humans are getting on the spaceships, going to check out, kind of doing the tourism of the planet. And then, of course, at the end, the people trying to translate the book figure out that it isn't a book on how to help humankind. The book to serve man is a cookbook. It is on how to cook humans. Na 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 na. Which sounds awfully like uh, the Batman theme song now that I think of it. For those of you who are new to English or maybe you don't know the expression to serve, in English, when we say we serve someone, it means we're caring for them in a way, we're giving of ourselves, right? To do a service for them. We talk about serving a lot, right? In church, especially because Jesus calls us to serve. But we also say to serve food. So I'm serving tacos for lunch. Actually means I'm serving tacos to people for lunch. We just leave out the two people part, right? So we just say I'm serving tacos. Hence the joke to say a book is about how to serve humans could be a book on how to care for humans or how to serve humans to aliens for lunch. Of course, in English, we also say we're serving someone when we give them papers, telling them we're about to sue them. So that's, that's just confusing, so we'll leave that one out. English is a terrible language. Space aliens aside, have you ever noticed how many times something that was created to serve the good of humanity actually ends up harming people, chewing them up, spitting them out? We see it happen in all kinds of the systems around us. When the necessary infrastructure and institutions, say, behind a big school board gets so big that they they keep cutting how much money gets to the actual classrooms in order to maintain the bureaucracy and the bureaucrats, right? When an insurance company creates all kinds of loopholes so they can refuse to pay out to someone who's embattled in tragedy. These are just two examples. We see it everywhere, and sadly, we see it in Christianity and in churches as well. Now, for our current worship series, we've been using the themes in a book called, A Church Called Tove, which, by the way, we have a copy of in the library. If anyone is interested in reading it, you can check it out after worship. And these themes are helping us to consider the goodness of God and what it means to be a good church, a tove church. The word tove being the Hebrew word for good. 
But sadly, the book is written in response to times where the church has not been tov. When churches and denominations are confronted with claims of abuse or misconduct that have happened in their communities, they prioritize protecting their own reputation and their institutions and their leaders over the people that Jesus has called them to love. The church is created to love people, ends up protecting the institution and, uh, in order to hide the hurt that they are causing. This book contrasts this toxic culture in churches with churches that have a spirit-formed, Christ-like cultures of goodness, of tov. As we've shared before, um, the, the authors have created the circle of tov, which we are moving around. A circle of good that is about cultivating and nurturing goodness. Today our focus is on how a good church, but also just good people, can reflect the image of God, uh, the image of a good God, by putting people first and resisting institution creep. And no, institution creep isn't a clown that serves as a mascot for a billion-dollar corporation. By the way, this is uh, the first Ronald McDonald. <laughs> Can you imagine that guy playing with your children? And institution creep right there. In the book McKnight and Berenger, they define institution creep as when the needs of the organization begin to supersede the needs of the people in the organization. And that's when people get squashed. Institution creep is how even well-intentioned organizations and churches can start off prioritizing people, but slowly over time the focus turns from existing for the good of people to maintaining the institutions themselves. It is something that slowly creeps in until a little at a time, unnoticed, until it takes over. It's kind of like my neighbor who bought one of those Christmas inflatable lawn decorations one year as a joke for her partner. Then someone else bought her one and she put it out with it. And then someone else bought her one the next year and she put it out with it. Until one year all of a sudden she realized she was that neighbor that had the, their lawn is completely covered in inflatable Christmas decorations. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have lots of inflatable lawn decorations. <laughs> uh, if that's integral to who you are and to your values. But for her, and if that's who you are, who you want to be, there's nothing wrong with it. But for her, it wasn't who she wanted to be. But just one, all of a sudden, this like, joke one year ended up being, she's like, I, I never wanted to do this. That's just a silly kind of picture of how these things sneak up on us. A less silly story, of course, is the one that Karen read for us, where Jesus actually deals with this kind of toxic institutional creep. Uh, Mark 2, 23 to 24. One Sabbath, Jesus was out going through the grain fields. His disciples, as his disciples walked along, they began to pick heads of the grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So a little backstory for those of us who are unfamiliar. We could talk about Sabbath for many weeks in a row and never cover it all. It's a very beautiful, deep thing in Scripture. Here's an oversimplification just to get us on the same page. The word Sabbath or Shabbat is a Hebrew word which means to rest or to cease, to stop what you're doing. In the first five books of our Bibles and Judaism, they call it the Torah. Essentially, anytime you read the word law in the Bible, it, it means the Torah. It means these, five, these first five books. 
So in the, begin, in the first book, after God created everything in six days, he took a Shabbat, a Sabbath. He rested on the seventh day. And so the Israelites, who were meant to live as a reflection of God, they were commanded to also take a Shabbat, a Sabbath, to cease working on the seventh day of every week. Which for them, in their calendar, is Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. This command was one of the Ten Commandments. It was the longest and most detailed command because it was so important to the Israelites and to their identity as Jews, as Hebrews. Now, of course, if you want to make sure you're Sabbathing correctly, simply saying don't work for a day, rest, right? That's not enough. What, is that, what does that even mean, right? What is work? You, so you need to define what work is in order to obey this law, right? So, for example, if you're a farmer, what is working? Well, digging in the dirt is work, so then you can't do that. But what if I kick some dirt and it makes a little hole, right? Is that work? Yes, it is. You just broke the laws of Sabbath. You could actually be killed for that because you dug a hole on the Sabbath. You worked, right? It seems a bit ridiculous, but that's what, when you, you have to figure, it's hard to figure these things out. You want, they want to get it right. So over the centuries, there are a lot of discussions and reflections on how to make up how to obey this law. Okay, so another example, harvesting grain. Right? Harvesting grain, you take a sickle, it's like a giant sword, but it's curved sideways. Right? You take a sickle and you cut it down, right? That's work. Back-breaking, sweaty work. Okay, so you can't do that. And the next step, taking the stuff you've cut and threshing, usually you'd have ox stamp on it. Well, that's work too. That's to separate the heads of grain from the wheat. You can't do that either, right? That's work. But what if I just pick off one grain off a head, one head off? Is that work? Well, you've just harvested some seeds. So yeah, you just you broke the rules of Sabbath. You are a lawbreaker. You can't do it. So this is why they see these Jewish leaders accusing Jesus and the disciples of doing what is unlawful because Jesus and his disciples were plucking the heads of grain as they walked through the fields. Ironically, the walking that they were doing, they would have gone more steps than you're allowed according to these laws too. So they were breaking laws all over the place. And this is similar to actually what we see a few verses later in Mark 3, the second half of what Karen read for us, where Jesus goes to a synagogue and sees a man with a shriveled hand. Now the author intentionally put these two stories together so that we would get this point. Jesus knows the Jewish leaders are looking for reasons to accuse him of breaking the law, so he asks them the question, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill it? But they remained silent. So he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and his hand was completely restored which made them angry enough that this is the point at which they decide they're going to go and try to kill Jesus. On the Sabbath, you're only supposed to do what is necessary. So if someone was going to die, you could intervene to save their life. In this case, the man had a withered hand, so it wasn't necessary to help him. He'd had it for years. It wasn't necessary, but it was good. So it was tov to help him, so Jesus did. But the leaders weren't interested in tov, they were interested in the rules. 
They were so caught up in serving the laws, maintaining the institution of their religion, that they were angry that Jesus did something good and miraculous. Seeing them like this, Jesus was angry, and he was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. The word here for stubborn hearts means unwilling to understand. They were unwilling to learn. They had hardened their own hearts. Their minds were closed. What began as a genuine desire to obey God and serve the good of humanity in, God, in the Sabbath law of ceasing, over time took on all these sub-laws. And the laws themselves became more important to, to them than the people that these laws were supposed to serve. It's better to harm, cause harm to a person or simply leave them in their misery to obey the law than to do what is best for a person and taking a chance on breaking the law and then having God's wrath come upon you. They were so caught up in their fundamentalist views of adhering legalistically to the rules of the institution that they lost sight of what the institution existed for in the first place. They closed their minds, unwilling to see and to empathize with this human life that is right before them. Unwilling to see God's desire for grace and love to bring about human flourishing. Now, of course, Jesus, who knows God better than anyone, God, Jesus knows why God actually set this whole Sabbath thing up in the first place. And it isn't to be afraid of God. Jesus taught a God that was very different than what these laws saw. Jesus taught of a God of love and of forgiveness and of grace and of empathy. So Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now just a side note here. The wording here for man would have been understood in the first century as referring to all people, not just to males. So another way of translating it could actually be, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. So the child of humanity, now some people wouldn't like this translation because Jesus gave himself the title, Son of Man, from the original Hebrew. Um, so some people don't like doing, translating Son of Man as child of humanity, but that is actually consistent with what it means in the Old Testament in the original source, we just kind of, we lose the sense that it's a title when we say child of humanity. So we often like to keep using son of man, and Jesus was male. So we, like to, we tend to like to keep that son of man, but what that phrase really means is just a child of humanity. It's just, he's a human, it's a human being. But in the prophets, of course, Jesus is said as a human being that is actually not just a human being. He's more than a human being. So the Sabbath was made for humanity, all of humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. And so Jesus, the one the prophets have, have uh, had prophesied, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now the point here, regardless of which translation you use, and you can argue translations forever, the point is that Jesus is the prophesied human being who is above all human beings, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is made for the flourishing of human beings, not just human beings made for the Sabbath. To serve humans, not to eat them for breakfast. What began is a command from God for the good of humanity and for the good of the whole earth itself. Um, but that's a whole other 
series of sermons. Slowly over time, the command to cease from labor became more and more laborious. Institutionalization slowly creeped in until what was meant for human flourishing became marred by legalism and hindrances to compassion, empathy, healing, and justice. We see something similar later in the book of Mark where Jesus, where the Jewish leaders are asking Jesus why his, him and his followers don't follow ritualistic rules of hand-washing before eating. And Jesus tells them that these, they, they are letting go of the commandments of God and holding on to their own traditions. And he uses an example to show them of how hypocritical they are. In the Torah, again, those first five books of our Bibles, it specifies that people can devote some of their possessions to God. But what they were doing with this law is if someone dedicated something to God, they, which was called korban, and the word means offering, and the person, if they offered something to God, they could actually keep it until they died. So if I were to offer my house as korban, as an offering, I could keep the house, I could live in it, it would be mine. I could make use of it until I die. And then when I died, it would go to the temple. But what was happening here was people were supposed to be caring for their parents. Right? Honor your father and mother being one of the Ten Commandments. But if they devoted their stuff to God, they could keep it. And then they didn't have to take care of their parents. So, for example... My parents, they're out of a house. They're homeless. I've dedicated my house to God. I don't have to have them live with, them, with me because it's God's house. It's not their house. I don't, have to, I don't have to give it to them. I don't have to care for them. They can do whatever they need to do to survive, and I can keep it for myself. So by devoting their stuff to God, they could keep it and not have to care for their parents. They could let their parents go destitute so that they could keep their own possessions. And, and by saying that they were debting it to God, it was making them look righteous. And, and right? Like great leaders and great wor um, God-worshipping people out of selfishness. And the religious leaders were encouraging this selfishness and this oppression of the vulnerable because it meant that when the people died, they would end up getting it. And Jesus says that their interpretations and their use of the Torah by adding all of these rules on top of what was meant for good, in this case, their interpretation ends up being for the benefit of the institution of the temple and the priesthood is so against God's desire that Jesus says they actually nullify the word of God. They've taken something that came into being and a desire to be faithful to God, to serve people, but which slowly became their own word, twisting it into something despicable, and in so doing, they made God's law meaningless. The institution of religious laws and rituals twisted and perverted for the sake of benefiting the leaders, not only financially, but in giving them power and control over people who sought to serve God. Appeasing the rich who sought to serve themselves so the rich got richer and the powerful got more powerful. Hopefully, as I say this, you're actually, I'm hoping that you're actually thinking of how we see this everywhere today, don't we? In cultures and sadly in churches too. It's the book of church, the book. Church called Tove accounts 
Uh, there are, they tell all kinds of stories about just terrible things that, that churches have done. Obsessed with numbers, with financial success, churches become institutions that exist for the people. They become institutions that originally existed for people, but now they exist to keep the institution going rather than the good of the people who seek to glorify God. And worse, churches that are so obsessed with the charismatic leaders, if you're, luckily for you, you don't have charismatic leaders. <laughs> the most charismatic thing about me, the glorious thing about me is my shirt. And this was my dad's that he wore in the 70s, and I, he gave it to me. So, But anyway, they're so obsessed with their charismatic leaders that when those leaders become wolves in sheep's clothing, herding people in their care, they would rather defend these leaders and twist the truth so that the institution isn't hurt. They tell themselves, you know, it's better to keep the good ministry. I mean, we have this multi-mega million dollar ministry going we're touching so many lives. What's more important? So many lives? Or these few and maybe not so great things that the pastor was doing? Besides, he, he wasn't actually really doing them. He, you know what I mean? They're, they're making these, these accusations are false. You see how quickly a church that exists for loving people can become a place where people come Maybe not even second, maybe third, fourth, maybe a hundredth down the line. All in the name of good ministry. And of course, this kind of thinking is the same kind of closed-minded, hard-hearted stubbornness that draws Jesus' anger. If people are being harmed, even if it's only a few, they nullify God's word. Even their good ministry makes a mockery of God. Of course, these are the kinds of stories that make us think this is why we shouldn't have institutions, right? Especially religions shouldn't be institutionalized. We think it's the institutionalization of religion that ruins things, that leads people away from God. And this is both correct and incorrect. Uh, in the book uh, Christianity Surprise, Kevin Rao writes this. He words it way more succinctly and better than I could, so... He writes, today we almost automatically think of institutions as bureaucratic extinguishers of vibrant faith and all that goes into them. Dynamic relationships, powerful worship, works of justice, and imaginative thinking. If you want to slow stop the beating heart of new faith, you institutionalize it. If you want to oppress human beings, build institutions that smother their natural creativity. If you want to ensure that innovation never gets the upper hand and do things as an institution. If you want drudgery day after day, work in an institution, and so on and so on. But then he goes on, he says this, But the early Christians did not share our view. Instead, they insisted that the revelation of the human required the development of institutions to sustain the practices that kept the new vision of the human visible and alive in the world. The story of everything positioned them, that is, as institutionally creative people. I like that, institutionally creative people. Although I think I would want to add to it uh, institutionally creative, but discerning and in, in, in living in the spirit of God to Christ. Because we can still be really creative about that and still move away from Christ, right? So, for example, many of us think of the early church, we think of stories like in the book of Acts, 
How the church is sharing every, it tells us the church shared everything that they had with one another. And we kind of picture this as this just beautiful, organic, everyone just loving one another, right? But we miss that in order for that to happen, they actually had set up structure on how to bring your possessions to share. The next chapter in Acts, after we read they shared everything, tells us the system they had in place was to bring it to the apostles who would then distribute it. Then only one chapter later, we read how they are distributing food. And if you've ever been involved in distributing food, you know it takes a lot of organization on the part of many people. They are distributing food, and already in the first century, this new beautiful church that we picture as just this organic love fest, there's already racial discrimination. Because the Hebrews, are, they're, they're, giving, they're treating the Hebrew widows better than the Greek widows. They're getting, the Hebrew widows are getting preferential treatment. So they actually had to set up a system to make sure that discrimination wasn't happening. And they created a new type of leader called deacons. To institute, uh, the deacons were created to distribute food so that discrimination didn't happen and the, so the apostles could preach in a higher level insight. This, this beautiful, institutionally creative of there is something that doesn't reflect God. How can we make this so that it does reflect God. It is an institution that is bad in itself. It is how it is used. Without it, we don't have hospitals. Right? We don't have uh, orphanages. We can't care for the poor. We can't organize justice to work against discrimination. It all requires institutionally creative people in the power of the Spirit. For the glory of God. The key is what is what is serving who, not who is serving what. The institution of the church should always serve the people so that the people can serve God. Institutions are for people, not people for institutions. Policy is for people, not program is for people. Buildings are people, on and on and on. Everything that the church does, everything that we do here as a family should be done to serve people, not to propagate or protect the institution or the building. So when we make choices of institution over people, we actually nullify God's desires for us. But it can be a hard balance. You know, buildings, policies, programs, etc. that can help us care for people intentionally and as good stewards, so we need them. But we simply, not simply, we need to be watchful that they always remain in their proper place. And our posture to them has to remain proper. That if we ever need to sacrifice one over the other, we want to be sure to sacrifice the right one, lest we become a people who have nullified the good God. I think of the way that we use our building here. If we wanted to make sure that we never had anything break or get ruined or get dirty, we could put up all kinds of system and laws to keep people out, Right? Much to the property committee's chagrin, we try not to do that. We try to open the doors as much as possible, which means that things get broken. Things go missing. So we need to be faithful with, our, with what we have to steward as a community because we can't just let things get ruined and destroyed because then we have to fix them, which it bears financial weight, right? So we want to be respectful of the gift that God has given us in the building, but we have the building so that the, the gospel of Jesus can be proclaimed through loving our neighbors and loving each other. 
McKnight and Beringer give five very basic things, and I'll end with this. And if we as a church keep them before us, and as we, I think, as individuals in our own homes, in our own places of work, these kinds of things help keep our focus on the flourishing of human beings to the glory of God, rather than working to keep our institutions going. And it's, 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 it's very basic. First is treat people as people. Enfold others into the community. Recognize all people as made in the image of God. Treat people as siblings. And develop Jesus-like eyes for people. Right? Seems pretty basic. But we see it happen all the time. In churches, even sometimes the way that some of us even run our own homes. Things that are meant for the flourishing of our families, of our community. Over time, we start treating people like they're part of a, part of a cog. They're a piece in the organization, right? Sometimes volunteers, you, you may sometimes when you volunteer, have you ever had this experience where you feel like you go, you volunteer for something and you feel like you're just being treated like you're just being used for the purposes of the people who are leading the thing as opposed to have, making a difference or having an impact in what you're volunteering in. If we prayerfully keep this people-first posture, it will help us to avoid institution creep. It'll help us to create and sustain habits, practices, and structures that honor God. And it'll help us to creatively change structures that are no longer serving people that have become either redundant or oppressive. Whether it be how we treat people at our offices or in neighborhoods, in our homes, or on social media, how we as a church talk about policy. Like right now, the deacons are working on policies that protect refugees and newcomers to Canada so that when the Rasso family comes, we can offer them the best care possible. Working on policy for vulnerable adults, children, and youth. We already have children and youth, and we're adding vulnerable adults so that we can be a safe place to the most vulnerable among us. But then we're going to have to be careful as Scott pointed out at the deacons meeting, then we have to be careful though because then we can just be like, okay, we got to all do this paperwork. We have to stick to these policies and therefore we could actually use the policies to stop us from caring for people. So it's a hard balance. All the program we do is not for the sake of doing the program, but that all programs and events serve the greater good of human flourishing, community building, and worshiping the living God. So if a program isn't doing that, we need to just stop doing it. And this is actually, I find Spring Garden, you are in general a very creative people. That when something isn't doing what it's supposed to, you don't just keep doing it because we've done it for 10 years or 50 years. You say, okay, this no longer is serving God and serving people. So let's scrap it and find something else that will serve God here. We want to be institutionally creative people creating systems that sustain practice and habits of care, grace, empathy, and love. Not people serving the structure, but structure that serves people for good. The people of God, the church, is created to serve humanity, not humanity to serve the institution. Nourishing, protecting, and sustaining human flourishing 
all to the praise and the glory of God through Jesus our Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, we all have patterns and habits uh, and systems, even when we're unaware of them, things that we do, ways that we live. Some are placed upon us and some we simply do because that's just how we've done it. Give us creativity, Lord. Give us creativity in your spirit that we would be able to identify the ways in which that we, like the, the Pharisees, have fallen into practices of legalism that actually make you angry and, and frustrated and disappointed. Things that we think that perhaps even came out of a beautiful intention at the beginning, but then no longer show love, reveal your kingdom. So give us, Lord, creativity in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, in our retirement. And give us this creativity in your Holy Spirit as a community. We, Lord, want nothing more than to be a good church where your goodness of your, the goodness of your kingdom is revealed. Give us humble hearts. Help us to accept the places where we need to be challenged and changed. And give us the creativity to see what you, your Holy Spirit, is doing in our neighbors and in our city, that we would follow after you to your glory. Amen.